It's a privilege to be here with you today. It's an honor to be able to give the word today. And I just want to um, say something like I always say before the word is that sure enough, last night, pastor called me at midnight. And uh, he said, brother, uh, you're going to need to do this. You're going to need to do that. And if you could just take a mental note and write this down and do that and then do this. And I said, um, pastor, <laughs> I'm going to do my best. <laughs> so hey, if you haven't figured it out yet, Pastor Jacques, Tina, and their family are out of town. And uh, they are at a conference. And a pastor is learning to become a better pastor. And Tina is learning to become a better wife. So, but we do, seriously, we do have some pictures of them. I don't know, Han, if you're able to put those up on the screen. Right here, this is a guest speaker, Dr. James White in the middle, with Pastor Jacques on the left and his son Robert on the right. And then, uh, this is a little out of order, but uh, this is, they were attending a conference on this picture here. And here, I believe that they were at, um, let's see, they were at the, uh, this is out of order. So, <laughs> Doug Wilson, there, there we go, that's the one I wanted. That's Doug Wilson, okay, and he's the conference leader and the senior pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. And of course, there's Pastor again there and Robert. They were really blessed to be able to meet Doug. And let's see, oh, here is uh, Pastor and Tina and their two beautiful children at the conference. And there might be one more. Or we saw it earlier, they were attending uh, New St. Andrew's Convocation. This is it. Uh, this is Doug Wilson's Christian College. So I think that is all of them. So I know, that, uh, thank you. So they send their love uh, and let them know that uh, they're continuing to pray for us. And uh, um, that was it. So anyways, um, I also wanted to welcome, as Sarah Beth has already a couple of times, our online listening audience. And all of you that are visiting today and all of you that are here in person and members of this congregation, thank you so much for being here. Also want to welcome our Eagle River listening audience up in the North Woods of Wisconsin. Uh, I, have, I want to welcome Amy and Sue. They've been regular listeners up there. And Amy is uh, recovering from successful uh, knee surgery. I want to say hi to Joe and Sally and their son Gabe Moradante. Hi, you guys. Miss you and love you. David and Connie Justice. Uh, Lisa, uh, a new listener from the Eagle River area. And I also want to say, of course, hello to my son, Tom, and Sarah. And uh, they, they're with their two kitties. Of course, their explanation of those two kitties are, Dad, these are your grandchildren. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, we, we need to change that. So hey, love you guys. Can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks. I uh, also want to mention this week that uh, Bruce Scoville um, ended up in the hospital earlier this week. And uh, so we want to pray for Bruce and uh, also uh, Steve Zalazzo's parents, Dan and Pam, uh, both were in the hospital this week. And uh, Pam is back home and uh, Dan uh, is recovering, but he's recovering a little slower. He'll be hopefully soon home. 
So I'm going to just pray for them. Lord, we just um, lift up uh, Dan and Pam and Bruce, and we say, Lord, have your way. May your will be done, God. Lord, we believe in healing, and we believe, Lord, that uh, you will get the glory for their healing in Jesus' name. And Father, now, as we get ready and prepare ourselves to get into the Word, I pray, Lord, that you would open up hearts and minds and ears to hear the Word as it goes forth in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin today by talking about the Gospel of John. We have mentioned before that John's Gospel is unique from the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their Gospels are historical Gospels, and John's Gospel is more spiritual. John wrote to convince his readers of Jesus' true identity as the incarnate God-man whose divine and human nature was perfectly united into one person who was the prophesied Christ, the Savior of the world. He organized his whole gospel around eight signs or proofs that reinforce Jesus' identity leading to faith. And the faith John is talking about there is saving faith. Quite interesting, at my workplace this week, I began asking some of my co-workers if they had faith and in what. And here are some responses. I have faith in my spouse, my job, my family, that God will keep my family safe, and even faith in my car. Almost everything we talk about today is generalized. I'm going to give you an example. Somebody might say, I took my boat out on the lake. Okay? Rowboat, fishing boat, bass boat, deck boat, speed boat, sailboat, pontoon boat. But when it comes to faith, we need to be careful not to generalize it. The eight miracles that John is referring to are leading us to specifically saving faith. The first miracle, the miracle at Cana, is the wedding feast that Jesus turned the water into wine. The second miracle was the healing of the royal official's son where the royal official came to Jesus and said, my son is very sick, please come and heal him. And Jesus said, go your way, your son is healed. And the royal official found out when he got home that the son was healed that very hour when Jesus spoke those words. The last couple weeks we talked about the healing at Bethesda, where a man who had been sick for 38 years, and Jesus told him to pick up his pallet and walk, and of course, this created a problem because he did this on the Sabbath, which was against Jewish law. 
they thought Jesus was a huge blasphemer. And to make matters worse, then Jesus was putting himself in the same plane as saying he was God. And so they wanted to kill him. And now it leads us to, to, to today. We're going to study the 5,000 fed, the overall message of the Gospel of John is found in John 20, 20 through 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Three prominent words. Signs, believe, and life receive constant emphasis throughout the gospel to enforce the theme of salvation in him. The divinity of Jesus Christ was established in John 1, 1 through 4, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him is life, and the life was the light of men. Again, in John 1, 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Also John 1:14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Matthew 3, verse 17, the Father affirms Jesus as his son. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This was the Father affirming Jesus as his Son. John the Baptist two times affirms Jesus as God. In John 1.29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again in John 1.36, he says the exact same words. There are seven emphatic I am statements which identify Jesus as God and the Messiah. I have all seven. I just want to read this one. John 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Finally, throughout the gospel, John himself confirms Jesus as the Christ. In John 21, 24 to 25, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, 
I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that it would be written. John composed his gospel to provide reasons for saving faith. And his readers, as in his readers, to assure them that they would receive the divine gift of eternal life. So as we begin our gospel reading today, I want to set the stage. I like to do this because then when you read the actual gospel, it kind of gives you a feel for where we're at, what was actually happening in that time, and helps you to understand it. So here Jesus was going to Galilee to get away from the heat of the rulers and the leaders who were trying to kill him. They took Jesus as a huge blasphemer, trying to destroy their religious traditions, comparing himself equal to God. So Jesus gets on a boat with his disciples and wants to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. His disciples had just gotten back from a mission of preaching and teaching. And that's been recorded in Mark 6. And Jesus wanted to get together with them and find out what all had happened on their trip. So the heat's on from the rulers in Jerusalem. They need some rest. He wants to get away with his disciples. And on top of that, the word comes that John the Baptist has just been executed. They crossed to the east side of the sea. The only problem was, here they are going across by the boat, and they could see them going by boat, and the people all just ran around by foot to the other side to meet and greet him. The 5,000 fed John 6. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, and a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. It makes it a little bit easier to understand what's happening right there. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. They just wanted to get some rest and talk and figure out what was all going on. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. This is interesting because when Jesus started his ministry, we read earlier in one of the previous chapters, it talks about the Passover, and now we're here again with the Passover. So we know that we're, Jesus is about one year into his ministry. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. I suppose that every good teacher, sooner or later, wants to give his students a test. And this I believe that uh, Jesus probably did quite often in testing his disciples. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. 
for everyone to receive a little. Now a denarii uh, was one day's wage. So 200 denarii, uh, I think I calculated right, is over six months of wages. So that's what Philip was saying, is that 200 denarii, six months wage, is not sufficient for them, for everyone to just receive a little. Wow, I, you know what? I just wish, uh, as I'm looking at that response by Philip, I'd like to think that maybe my response would be different after seeing all the miracles Jesus had done. We're into the fourth great miracle that John is writing about. But I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm really not sure, you know? So I'm just going to take Philip's camp on that and say I probably would have answered the same way. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, his brother, said to him, There is a lad who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many people? I mean, come on. Five barley loaves and two fish? I don't think he would get past the first row here. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down. In number, about 5,000. So 5,000 men... There's going to be 5,000 women, and where there's 5,000 men and 5,000 women, there's going to definitely be children. So some say here that there was, could have been easily as much as 20,000 that Jesus fed that day. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. Not just a little, but as much as they wanted. They stuffed themselves. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Wow, so let's talk about this. This is the only miracle mentioned in all four Gospels, excluding the death and resurrection of Jesus on the cross. So obviously it impacted all four Gospel writers greatly. It was the most massive miracle with participation of around 20,000. And every single person was a participant of the miracle. This wasn't one person getting their eyes being healed or their deaf ears being opened. This was 20,000 people that were participating in this miracle. It was massive. The bread and fish were being multiplied right in front of them. Truly, this was a miracle of mass proportion. No one could deny this incredible working power of Jesus Christ on that day. Remember, John was writing about these miracles to reinforce the identity of Jesus Christ. The people had just witnessed the greatest miracle of multiplication ever. 
And yet, by the end of chapter 6, we see that many of his disciples withdrew and were not working, not walking with him anymore. We find in John 6, 65, and he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And then here it is in 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. How could this be? At the end of chapter 5, Jesus explains that the scriptures testify of him. The people were unwilling to come to him so that they may have life. Then he performs this massive miracle. Obviously, their faith was in the miracle, not the miracle worker. Their faith was in a healing and not the healer. The kind of faith they had was general faith. You might even call it temporal. What they were lacking was saving faith. The massive crowds in Galilee that day could not get past their religion. They put their salvation in good morals and kind deeds and allowed their general faith to trust in Jesus for miracles and healings and bypassing the promise to eternal life. Many today will believe in a historical Jesus who walked the earth about 2,000 years ago. But what do they believe about the significance of his death? And do they even believe in his resurrection? The nature and the application of saving faith is completely different from the nature and application of general faith or historical faith. I'm going to give you five examples right now of general faith versus saving faith. General faith is aware of a person's physical and financial problem, which is lack, while saving faith is aware of a man's single greatest problem, which is sin. General faith focuses on current and temporal outcomes, while saving faith focuses on an ultimate eternal outcome. General faith seeks to get something for self, while saving faith seeks to mend a broken relationship with God. General faith believes for favorable circumstances in life, while saving faith believes God's eternal wrath against their sin is swallowed up in Christ's work in the cross forever. General faith has to do with a hope that God will meet our temporal needs in life. 
such as multiplying the bread and the fish. While saving faith is an act of surrendering to Christ's atoning work on the cross, which saves us from our sin and death. If your faith in Christ is in his crucifixion as a sufficient payment made to cover your sin debt against a perfectly holy God, then you have saving faith. If your faith in Christ is in the sufficiency of his resurrection to atone for your sins before God, then your faith saves you from the wrath of God against your sin. This is saving faith. Your faith is not saving faith if you're not first aware of your sin that makes salvation necessary. Why is it so quiet in here? I need an amen once in a while. All right. <laughs> uh, your faith is not saving faith. If you have no urgency to be forgiven for your sin, hey, I'm in this with you guys. Right? We're on this journey together. Your faith is not saving faith. If you have an interest to go to heaven, but not an interest to be in relationship with God. In other words, you want heaven, but you do not want God. So today, church, I'm challenging us to take inventory on our faith. Are we substituting general or historical or temporal faith for saving faith. Saving faith allows our sinful nature to be swallowed up by Christ's victory on the cross and his righteousness to be imputed unto us. What a gift. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you, God, for sending Jesus Christ, your son, to come down here in exchange for our sin. We get his righteousness. We thank you, God, if we've ever taken our faith our saving faith for granted. We ask you, God, to forgive us of that. We ask you, Lord, to always, on the forefront of our minds, hold the importance of saving faith in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. God, and we thank you, Lord. If anybody's out there in the sound of my voice, and you believe that you've substituted 
general or historical faith for saving faith, I encourage you today to search the scriptures. Get into the word. Let the word breathe. Let the word show you the truth of God's word. Amen. Okay, so thank you very much.